welcome to another week of Diffusion. If you are an uninteresting person, the kind who stands around at parties having boring conversations with people who don't really like you, then luckily for you, you've tuned into one of the best international science shows around. In the next half an hour, we promise to do more for your social life than RSVP.com has done all year. We are going to bring you all the latest and quirkiest scientific facts, use them at your next party and watch your companions awkwardly spit laugh their finger food. I'm Jackie Hayes, and on today's show, we'll investigate parrots and wind farms with Lindsay Gray, and part two of the life of the amazing Kiwi scientist Ernest Rutherford, who made possible nuclear fission and silicon chops, with Lachlan Watmore. But before we get to any of that, here is Ian Wolfe with this week's science news. What's happening in the genes of people with chronic fatigue syndrome? The American Centre for Disease Control decided to test the symptoms of 226 people diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome for two days. Chronic fatigue syndrome is marked by a cluster of debilitating symptoms, including unexplained mental and physical fatigue, problems sleeping, problems with memory and concentration, and pain. CFS can be as disabling as multiple sclerosis. Participants spent two days in a hospital research ward undergoing tests, including clinical evaluations, measurements of sleep physiology, memory and concentration, autonomic nervous system function and blood evaluations. The idea is to look at the activity of 20,000 genes. Symptoms caused by the activity of separate genes don't necessarily mean that the symptoms are caused by an inherited or inheritable illness, as gene expression can be affected by the environment. So it doesn't say how they got sick, but more about the way they are sick. The data was analysed by computer, and the results suggest that there may be some common problems in the expression of genes that regulate the nervous system's reaction to stressful events, like injury and trauma. Fourteen papers were published in the April edition of Pharmacogenomics. The study won't be considered valid until somebody else can fund an entire two days of testing of CFS sufferers' symptoms to reproduce the work. Infrared images, sonar, why not x-rays or magnetic fields? All can be translated into a kind of braille and played across your tongue. You can feel that ball curving towards you through the air, even though your optic nerve is severed. The Florida Institute for Human and Machine Cognition envisioned their work serving U.S. Army Rangers with 360-degree unobstructed vision at night and allowing U.S. Navy SEALs to sense sonar in their heads while maintaining normal vision underwater. You can feel that hungry killer whale looming up before you in the murk, even though your eyes can't see it yet. It's basically tactile sonar, mediated through the tongue. It's not tongue-ah, but a brain port. The device has 144 microelectrodes that transmit information to the nerves in your tongue, just like Pop Rocks. However, after a very short period of adjustment, your brain converts these feelings into images, just as if you'd gained a new sensory organ. One version of the device, expected to be commercially marketed soon, has restored the sense of balance to those whose vestibular systems in the inner ear were destroyed by antibiotics or injury. 30 years ago, they tried vision for the blind with cameras connected to electrodes on stomach skin, but only the tongue-based devices have made it to the market. Why tongues and not hands or elbows or tummies? Because tongues are so highly innovated. All those nerves packed so closely together allows the reception of higher-res images than you could get from most other body parts. Coventry University in England will start teaching a master's degree in parapsychology this year applying scientific rigour to psychics, ghosts and supernatural experiences. 
Tony Lawrence, Senior Lecturer at Coventry University in the UK, is setting up the Master's Degree in the Psychology of Exceptional Human Experiences, which starts at the university in September. He said that at one extreme you have Richard Dawkins, and at the other you have the Pope. He'd like to offer a middle ground. They'll also study transpersonal psychology, looking at spiritual experiences such as prayer and meditation. Transpersonal psychology is concerned with self-development, peak experiences, mystical experiences, and the possibility of development beyond traditional ego boundaries. Students will also learn about how drugs contribute to spiritual experiences. Dr. Lawrence is open-minded about the experience of ghosts. He says the evidence isn't certain yet. Twelve students will be armed with cameras, motion detectors, tape recorders, and electromagnetic sensors to make the evidence certain. Researchers from the University of Queensland have found that Buddhist monks have different blood flow in their brains showing in magnetic resonance scans than people who don't meditate. The patterns of blood flow are in the areas that light up when we're happy and at peace. Meditation is something anyone can learn. At Sudbury in Canada, Professor Persinger found that he could induce religious experiences at the flick of a switch with strong rotating magnetic fields in his God helmet. The majority of people wearing the helmet had the strong feeling that an otherworldly presence was in the otherwise empty room with them. Some people experience ghosts, some people see God, some meet aliens. Some experience sitting in a room. A study by the Mind Body Institute in Boston into prayer and health found that prayer had no effect on people who didn't know they were being prayed for. Those who did know strangers were praying for them suffered more post-operative problems. In 1,800 patients from six different hospitals, they had three groups for the experiment. The first group were told they may or may not be prayed for and had people praying for them. The second were told the same, but had no prayers. The last group were told they definitely would be prayed for, and were prayed for. There were two Protestant prayer groups and one Catholic group, and no other faith because of time constraints. The prayer groups were given a standard prayer with the first name and last initial of the patients, and a standard time for the prayer. The prayers were conducted over 14 days from the beginning of surgery, and the only measurable effect was to make the people who were certain they're being prayed for suffer more complications after surgery. All you people out there, stop praying for me. You know who you are. We now present the second part of our two-part series on the life of Ernest Rutherford. If you missed part one, go to feeds.feedburner.com slash diffusionradio and download the show from the 4th of May 2006. Rutherford, after an impoverished upbringing in rural New Zealand, rose to scientific glory at Cambridge and Montreal and after returning to England to work at Manchester University, had just described the first credible model of the atom. However, he hit a snag, as Lachlan Watmore reports. Ernest Rutherford had a problem. His model of the atom was unstable. In 1908, a young researcher in Rutherford's team had fired alpha particles, which are helium nuclei stripped of their electrons, at a thin sheet of gold and observed that while most of the alpha particles passed straight through the gold, some were deflected off at oblique angles and a very small percentage were reflected right back at the alpha source. From this, Rutherford deduced that the atom had a small, very dense and positively charged nucleus, which was surrounded by orbiting electrons, like a small solar system. Most of the alpha particles thus flew through empty space, a small percentage being positively charged were deflected by the positively charged nucleus, and a very small percentage were directly repelled by the nucleus and flew back towards the alpha source. 
Rutherford's problem was that, according to classical physics, the orbiting electrons wouldn't last more than a split second before radiating away their energy and collapsing into the nucleus, which they obviously don't do. Fortunately, a young man from Copenhagen called Niels Bohr had just joined Rutherford's team at Manchester University. Bohr had moved to Manchester after working for J.J. Thompson at Cambridge. Thompson had discovered the electron and was the author of the plum pudding model of the atom, which was at odds with Rutherford's planetary model. Bohr would not have a bite of the plum pudding and felt intuitively that classical physics didn't apply inside the atom anyway. Fortunately, the quantum work of Max Planck and Albert Einstein provided him with the tools necessary to make sense of Rutherford's model, and he arrived at the conclusion that the electrons could exist in special, stable orbits. As the years went by, the Bohr atom, as it became known, was refined by the quantum greats such as Wolfgang Pauli, who deduced the existence of electron spin, Werner Heisenberg, who described the uncertainty principle, Erwin Schrödinger, who came up with the wave function, and other amazing minds who improved on their work to produce the seemingly reliable model of the atom that we all enjoy on a daily basis. However, back to Rutherford, who got this all started. As I mentioned in the first instalment of this series, Rutherford's main interest was radioactivity, and it was in this field that he achieved his greatest breakthrough. Towards the end of World War I, after working for the military on the hydrophonic detection of submarines, he returned to non-military work. He soon discovered that if you bombard nitrogen with alpha particles, the nitrogen will release a proton while absorbing the helium nucleus alpha particle, and you get a certain isotope of oxygen. Rutherford was thus the world's first successful alchemist who had converted one element into another. All right, that's enough physics, at least for this biology graduate. I'd like to look at Rutherford the man, and I'm going to read a passage from an essay on him by Charles Percy Snow. He was a big, rather clumsy man with a substantial bay window that started in the middle of the chest. I should guess that he was less muscular than at first sight he looked. He had large, staring blue eyes and a damp and pendulous lower lip. He didn't look in the least like an intellectual. Creative people of his abundant kind never do, of course, but all the talk of Rutherford looking like a farmer was unperceptive nonsense. His was really the kind of face and physique that often goes with great weight of character and gifts. It could easily have been the soma of a great writer. As he talked to his companions in the street, his voice was three times as loud as any of theirs and his accent was bizarre. In fact, he came from the very poor. His father was an odd-job man in New Zealand and the son of a Scottish emigrant. But there was nothing Antipodean or Scottish about Rutherford's accent. It sounded more like a mixture of West Country and Cockney. No one could have enjoyed himself more either in creative work or the honours it brought him. He worked hard, but with immense gusto. He got pleasure not only from the high moments, but also from the hours of what to others would be drudgery, sitting in the dark counting the alpha particle scintillations on the screen. His insight was direct, his intuition, with one curious exception, infallible. No scientist has made fewer mistakes. In the corpus of his published work, one of the largest in scientific history, there was nothing he had to correct afterwards. By 30, he had already set going the science of nuclear physics, single-handed, as a professor on £500 a year in the isolation of late Victorian Montreal. By 40, now in Manchester, he had found the structure of the atom on which all modern nuclear physics depends. Rutherford was knighted in 1914 and was given a life peerage in 1931, becoming Ernest, Lord Rutherford of Nelson. 
He spoke only twice in the House of Lords, both times in support of industrial research. The next year, 1932, was a great year for the Cavendish Laboratory, of which Rutherford was now director. James Chadwick discovered the neutron, and John Cockcroft and Ernest Walton split the atom using electrons. Both breakthroughs were under Rutherford's supervision. Rutherford could well have lived into a very ripe old age, but he didn't. He died in 1937, at the age of 66, still quite spry. The cause of his death was a partially strangled umbilical hernia, which should have been simple to correct, but the surgery for it was delayed. His ashes are interred in Westminster Abbey, surrounded by other greats of British science, including Thompson, Kelvin and Newton. The last word on Rutherford should come from his biographer, John Campbell. His discoveries are his real memorial, but forgotten is his humility in giving his co-workers more than full credit. Whilst he was at Manchester, he didn't put his name on a third of the papers reporting on radioactivity, even though he initiated almost every investigation. Often he would do the preliminary work and then hand the topic on to a student or colleague. He never put his name on Geiger and Marsden's paper announcing large angle scattering of alpha rays, nor on Chadwick's paper announcing the neutron, nor on Cockcroft or Wilson's paper announcing the splitting of the atom using a particle accelerator. His humility should also be a memorial. That was Lachlan Watmore, ably assisted by Ludwig von Beethoven, with the life and work of Ernest Rutherford. Rock 
on the bright up. Let's get some together. Oh, yeah, I'm over here. Oh, yeah. That was The Beach Party by Hot Chip. Now move aside, Katie Holmes and Tom Cruise. Our two latest media lovebirds are Environmental Minister Ian Campbell and the Orange-Bellied Parrot. Here's Lindsay Gray with The Lowdown. The Orange-Bellied Parrot has been a media darling of late and its time in the limelight is well-deserved as it has some very interesting habitats and requirements. Though sadly, as for most animals with specialist needs, the more finicky you are about what you can and can't do, the more vulnerable you make yourself to extinction. Think pandas and bamboo. Orange-bellied parrots are beautiful medium-sized birds with bright blue wings and a brilliant orange splotch on their belly. They're one of only two species of migratory parrots in Australia and during each parrot's seven-year life they'll cross Windy Bath Strait biannually. The orange-bellied parrot's breeding season begins in November every year and this takes place in a narrow coastal strip of protected eucalypt forest in southwest Tasmania. The parrots practice strict monogamy and are very fussy about where they'll nest. They only select hollows from two types of gum tree and they almost always insist on using the same snug hollow year in, year out. The average clutch size is 4.5 eggs and most chicks leave their nests fully fledged by mid-February. By April, all adults and juvenile birds have left their apple isle breeding territory, which is now getting a bit chilly, by flying north, first to King Island for a little rest and then to coastal Victoria. Most of the population overwinters in coastal grasslands in central Victoria, while some go west along the coast to South Australia. By October, with the chill wearing off their hollows, all the birds decide to trace their flaps, with the last stragglers touching down back in Tassie by early November. Orange-bellied parrots are mostly granivorous, that means grain-eaters. As grain grows on grasses and grasses grow on the ground, orange-bellied parrots feed whilst wandering around on the ground. Now all this is very interesting, but unlikely to catch the eyes of the current affair. So what is it about these parrots that the media finds so attractive? Well, it turns out the poor deers are endangered, and in the last 206 years they've decreased from locally abundant, which means lots of birds, right down to 180 mature adults. The region they occupy for half the year in coastal Victoria has also proved popular for industry development proposals. In April, our Federal Environment Minister, Ian Campbell, disapproved the construction of a $220 million wind farm at Bald Hill in Victoria, a locality near where orange-bellied parrots occur. Ian Campbell cited the wind farm's impacts on the parrots' population as his reasoning for disapproving the development. He claimed that one bird per year could be killed through directly striking the turbines and that he didn't want to have the blood of the parrots' existence on his hands. Current predictions assert that the orange-bellied parrot will become extinct within the next 50 years without the threat of striking turbines. Despite recent reintroductions of captively bred birds, the population is still sadly decreasing. Ian Campbell said he didn't want to tip the balance of the parrot's survival by approving the wind farm, but it seems to me the parrot's survival was tipped and sent plunging down a steep negative gradient toward extinction long ago. 
Leaving all the lusty opinions Ian Campbell's decision has generated and the energy politics aside, I naturally became curious about why the bird was so endangered in the first place and how much a wind farm could comparatively contribute to the species' extinction. Let's start with this wind farm's contribution. Luckily for me, Ian Campbell has done all of the research for me. The federal government had a consultancy firm, Biosis Research, compile a report on the potential impacts the wind farm would have on the parrot population's survivorship. The Biosis scientists went about this by creating a mathematical probability model. The model told them the probable decrease in annual survivorship of the whole parrot population due to the presence of the wind farm. Probability models work something like clairvoyance. Give them answers to very particular questions, a.k.a. give them parameters, and they'll predict the likely future. For the Bald Hill wind farm, the model would have used parameters like how attracted to giant propellers are orange-bellied parrots? How big are these propellers and how quickly can they rotate? Do orange-bellied parrots even live at Bald Hill? Etc. The accuracy of a model like this is dependent upon the certainty of the information you put into it. Use multiple dodgy parameters and you'll end up with an error-riddled calculation of probability, not a result to overstate the importance of. Turns out very little is known about the behaviour of the orange-bellied parrot, and least of all in the Bald Hill area, as they've never been sighted there. Our scientist friends at Biosis Research were forced to guess, conservatively of course, what parrots would probably do most of the time. They conceded that because of the sketchy inputs, the model's predictions of the probable future were super conservative. So what exactly did they tentatively predict? In the worst case, the entire orange-bellied parrot population would experience 99.99% survivorship per year after the installation of the Bald Hill wind farm. Somehow, from this very report, Ian Campbell concluded that the population was threatened. Hmm... Looks like the wind farm wasn't going to tip our bird anywhere. So what is it that's killing our friend? You guessed it, it's those fussy habits that are mostly to blame, particularly their reliance upon the health of two completely different regions for habitat. When in Tasmania during their breeding season, the parrots feed themselves and their young almost almost solely upon grass seeds that grow in moorlands near their nesting forests. The seed's availability depends on maintaining, by fire management, a mosaic of moorlands with grass of differing ages growing, as only grasses of a certain development stage will bear seed. Sadly, current and recent past forest management has not allowed fires of the appropriate frequency or intensity to be burnt, reducing grain availability for the birds. In addition, their overwintering range has been severely fragmented by urban developments and land clearing for agriculture, and though many pockets of appropriate habitat exist, the parrots, like many animals, do not like travelling via unfamiliar habitats to access suitable ones. The usual suspects are also contributing. As the parrot feeds on the ground, it is particularly vulnerable to fox and cat predation. The introduction of other granivorous birds to southern Australia and European starlings in Tasmania are competing with orange-bellied parrots for food and nesting sites. And finally, as for all migratory birds, climate change is also a threat. At its worst, climate change could throw throw migration timing and food availability out of sync. So hopefully with his newfound fondness for our orange-bellied parrot, our Environment Minister will consider trying to prevent its extinction through improved habitat management, habitat rehabilitation, feral species control and lastly by supporting renewable energy ventures nationwide.
And that was Lindsay Gray on why the parrot's love for the minister will soon be going belly up. That's all we have time for, for this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to know more about the stories we had on today's program, or if you'd like to tell us how great we are, we would love to hear from you. Contact us at diffusion at 2SER.com. Again, our email address is diffusion at 2SER.com. On this show, you heard the voices of Ian Wolfe, Lachlan Watmore and Lindsay Gray. Diffusion has been produced in the studios of 2SER Sydney and broadcast all over Australia by the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. If you'd like to listen to any of our old shows, you can find them at feeds.feedburner.com slash diffusionradio. And a big hello to all of you who are listening to us who found us on iTunes. I'm Jackie Hayes, and I hope that over the last half an hour, we've managed to make you laugh out loud in public places. We've gotten you interested in some funky science research and giving you jaw-dropping facts for small talk at parties. If you want more disturbing, informative and provocative science, tune in next week to Diffusion. Take nothing less than the suffering best. Do not obey, rumors people say that you can pass the test. Just move on up to a greater day. With just a little faith, if you put your mind to it, you can surely do it. Just a move on